In a cemetery, you've got it all. All different kinds of people from all walks of life and experience. Just to look at a humble stone that says mother, you would think, how sweet is that? Or looking at a large mausoleum, you might think, boy, that guy sure had it made. But there's much, much more that lies beneath these stones. Today, there's murderers and millionaires. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and Taffophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today, I'm joined by my boy, Dallin. Yes, ma'am. How are we doing? Good. So today, Dallin, we're going to be digging into more stories in one of my favorite cemeteries, Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis. We went as a family to this cemetery when we went on a little tour of the South. It was just so beautiful. I loved it so much. What did you think about it? Well, that was like a whole like six years ago right. when we went there. So there's definitely a, I don't remember a whole, all of it. But what I do remember was just how green it was and just how peaceful and pretty it was. And mm-hmm. you're just like, this is this is amazing. You don't get this in Arizona. That's for sure. We're lucky if there's some nice gravel rocks or a lot of times it's just dirt. It's sad, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Having grass at a cemetery when you're from Arizona is really awesome. Having grass, period, when you're from Arizona <laughs> is awesome. So, Dallin, what was your favorite monument or thing that you saw at Elmwood Cemetery? You know, like I said, it was like whole six years ago. So there's a lot of it that I don't really remember a lot of the stories. But what really stuck with me since then was I remember seeing this gravestone and next to it was seeing a swing. And I thought that's Mm -hmm. weird, putting a child's play instrument next to a dead body. And I thought that can't Mm -hmm. be normal. But when we looked into it and you were telling me about this and you discovered that its parent died and they put a swing next to their stone so the child could come and swing and spend time with them even after they died. And I just thought that was super sweet. And that really stuck with me. Yeah. His name was Jeffrey Smith. Jeffrey Smith. Yes, that was definitely memorable. That's something I remember too. We have a photo of that. So I've got four stories for you today, Dallin. A whole four. (laughs) I have two stories about millionaires and two stories about murderers. Oh my. (laughs) So what would you like to hear first? Hmm. You know what? We're going to go with that ching-ching. Let's go. (laughs) More money, more money. All right. Well, first we're going to start with a person named James Napoleon Balls. And he lived from 1841 to 1919. I think the reason I was originally interested in finding out more was their memorial, the statue that is at their grave in Elmwood Cemetery. You'll probably remember it when I describe it. It's of a woman and she has a cloak, a big long cloak that goes all the way down to the ground and covering her head and so her face is in shadows. And one hand is holding the edge of the cloak and kind of holding it open. And then the other hand has her finger in front of her mouth 
as if she's shushing, you know, she's saying, shh. Oh my gosh, I do. <laughs> and I remember that you were like, oh, let's go look at that. And I was just like, no, no, please no. That did, I was not, that did not sit good with me at all. Yeah, it just seemed just a little bit on the creepy side. So I was trying to figure out who were the falls, what was their family story. I don't know if anybody has any insight, you are welcome to email us and <laughs> give us some heads up on that. So we were wondering, is she saying, be reverent, it's the dead here, or... Silence your cell phone. <laughs> or I have a secret. I don't know. It's kind of one of those intriguing monuments that we come across. So here's a little bit about James Napoleon Falls and his family. Um, he was born in Macon, Tennessee on the 20th of February, 1841 a son of Gilbreth and Francis Falls. His paternal grandfather emigrated from North Carolina to Athens, Alabama, and during his stay there, Gilbreth Falls was born. From there, the family removed to Somerville, Tennessee. The grandfather was one of the first of the race of hardy aristocrats who moved across the mountains and created that wonderful community from LaGrange up to Old Belmont and across to Bolivar. The progenitor of the Falls family in this country was Charles Falls, who came from England in 1635, so they've been here a while. The paternal great-great-grandfather fell in action during the Revolutionary War, whereupon his 14-year-old son with the father's sword slew a Tory in the act of robbing his body. Gilbreth Falls came to Memphis in 1845, and under the name of G. Falls and Company, he engaged in the buying and exporting of cotton, being active in the conduct of this business for many years. He was one of the most prominent and far-sighted businessmen of his day and was held in high confidence and esteem in Memphis. James Falls attended private school in Memphis and later attended school at McLoresville, Tennessee. He completed his literary course at Antioch College, Yellow Sulphur Springs, Ohio. He returned home a short time before the outbreak of the Civil War and enlisted promptly in the Bluff City Grays, later Company B, 115th Regiment, Tennessee Infantry, and was later mounted under General Forrest. He fought from Belmont to Gainesville, with the exception of a short time after the Battle of Murfreesboro, where he surrendered to be with a mortally wounded brother, but escaped immediately after the brother's death. He received severe wounds at the Battle of Shiloh. Shiloh? Oh, yeah. that is so cool. Cool that he received severe wounds, or cool that he was at the Battle of Shiloh? <laughs> that he was at the Battle of Shiloh. <laughs> when we were um, going back to our trip, when we were doing that in the South, that was the very first Civil War battlefield slash cemetery that I've ever seen. And I just thought it was so, so neat. It was. It was really moving. There were so many graves. And I think it gave our family kind of that insight into the Civil War. If that was just one battlefield, how many young men our country lost during the Civil War. It's a feeling and experience that you just don't get anywhere else. In 1865, upon the close of the war, Mr. Falls returned to Memphis and joined his father's firm, then known as Falls and Cash. James Napoleon Falls was a pioneer in the cottonseed oil industry. His first mill was built in 1873 at Friar Point, Mississippi. Later, he erected the Valley Oil Mill in Memphis. 
and subsequently the Dixie Oil Mill in Little Rock, Arkansas. The Merchants Cotton Press and Storage Company was then the largest institution in Memphis, and Mr. Falls was president of that concern for 20 years, being a dominant factor in the continued progress. He had the distinction of being the first man to establish a factory for the manufacture of ice in Memphis. How do you even do that? <laughs> I don't know, but back in those days, you didn't really have a refrigerator or freezers. You know, you didn't have your own ice, so you had to buy ice to keep your fresh food cold. So I'm not sure how he manufactured ice. That's a topic we're going to have to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> His business was named the People's Ice Company. And in that connection, he sunk the first artesian well in this city, where the Linden Station is now located. As president of the Chickasaw Building Company, he erected the Falls Building, the largest exclusive cotton office building in the world. He was married at Walnut Bend, Arkansas, on the 8th of November, 1871, to Miss Clara Dunn. Their children were Clara Francis, Lawson Dunn, Minnie Lee, John William, and Melinda Elizabeth. Mr. Fall's life was an active and varied one. For four years, he was a soldier in as good a company as the Confederacy boasted of. And for half a century, he was a leader throughout the Mid-South in business, manufacturing, financial, social, and religious circles. So that's the story of Mr. Falls. There you go. Again, just looking at that statue, you know, all creepy-like. You would never know their story or what they did with their lives. Yeah, so it was one of those times. I have this all the time in cemeteries where I see something and then I go, take a picture, write down that name. I'm going to go back, get online, see what I can find about him. But that also makes me wonder why the choice of the statue. Or they're like, you know what, we want to be kept alone, so maybe we'll scare everyone else off. Or, <laughs> I don't know, maybe they thought it looked cool. I'm just like, why that one? I don't know. I really don't know. The next story is really great. It's one of those rags to riches stories. He became the first black millionaire in the South. What? His name is Robert Reed Church, born in Holly Springs, Mississippi, on June 18, 1839. His father was Charles B. Church, a wealthy white owner and captain of two luxury steamboats. And Emmeline, his mother, one of the man's slaves, who worked as a seamstress on the plantation. Okay, wait, what? Robert's mother and he were owned by his father. In later years, Robert maintained that neither he nor his mother had ever been treated as a slave, even though that was their legal status. His father may have treated him with attention, but he never formally recognized the relationship, nor did he educate his son. But he did train him in the steamboat business. Emmeline died when Robert was only 12 years old. His father then employed him as a dishwasher, cook, and steward until fateful events took Robert off the river forever. When the luxury steamer Bulletin No. 2 burned and sank in 1855, Robert and his father were among the few who had survived. That's insane. Then in 1862, the American Civil War began. While working as a steward on a steamer in 1862, it was captured by the Union Army, and 23-year-old Robert was dropped off in Memphis. 
Now a fugitive slave and later a freedman, Robert settled in Memphis where he embarked upon a career that would establish him as a successful businessman in the South. Robert Church married Louisa Ayers, also a former slave, in 1862. The couple had Mary Eliza, who became a prominent civil rights and women's rights advocate and suffragist. And they also had a son, Thomas Ayers Church. During this period, Church began to establish himself as a successful Memphis businessman. In 1865, Robert and Louisa Church both became entrepreneurs. Louisa opened a string of beauty parlors while Robert acquired a saloon and added to his holdings over the years, eventually owning a restaurant and a downtown hotel. The knowledge he gained as a steamboat steward equipped him to meet the personal needs of customers in a luxurious fashion. Church operated his hotel in downtown Memphis on the southwest corner of South 2nd and Gayoso Streets. And if Gayoso Street rings a bell, it's because in our Yellow Fever episode, Annie Cook, the hero hooker, was called the Madam of Gayoso Street. Her upscale establishment was somewhere close by. Well, the more you know. The hotel was advertised as the only first-class black hotel in the city. It had large, airy rooms, a dining facility, and was furnished with the best equipment of that day. During the Memphis Race Riot of 1866, a white mob attacked Church's saloon, shot him, and left him for dead. Church recovered and vowed to remain in Memphis despite the anti-Black violence. When the yellow fever epidemic of 1878 hit, Memphis was depopulated by the epidemic as half of their population left the city as the epidemic hit and then many died during the epidemic. The land was devalued and Robert saw a great opportunity in real estate. So he invested cheaply and increased his property holdings throughout the city. His properties grew to include undeveloped land, commercial buildings, residential housing, and bars in the red light district of Beale Street. It's been said that he collected approximately $6,000 a month in rent from his properties. $6,000 a month? <laughs> I don't even know what that is in those days, but he was making bank. That's impressive. Yeah, it is. After his marriage to Louisa ended in divorce, Church married Anna Wright in 1885, and they had Annette Elaine and Robert Jr., in the 1880s, Church built for himself and his family a large residence, which had 14 rooms, including a double drawing room, 32 by 16 feet, and mural decorations by a famed Italian artist. It was one of the first homes of the Queen Anne style erected in Memphis. That would be so beautiful. Oh yeah, no, that's really amazing. Sometimes when you think of the Queen Anne style, you think of the Bates Motel. That house was Queen Anne style, but that's creepy. Well, <laughs> that's kind of what this podcast is about in a sense. So. Bates Motel episode coming soon. It's coming. <laughs> and I'll have a picture of that too in the notes. It was a three-story frame imposing building with four bay windows. It was elaborately furnished. Unfortunately, his heirs didn't keep up with taxes on the house, and it was seized by the city in the 1930s. Fool. 
<laughs> it was demolished during the construction of the Foot Homes in 1941. Robert Church never gave up on the effort to build recreational facilities and in 1899 used his own money to purchase attractive land on Beale Street where he built an auditorium and called the venture Church's Park and Auditorium, the first major urban recreational center in the nation owned by an African-American. Valued at $100,000 when built, Church's Auditorium seated more than 2,000 people and became a renowned cultural, recreational, and civic center for Black Memphians. Another famous Memphis citizen, W.C. Handy, was employed as orchestra leader at the park and auditorium. Speakers and performers at Church's Auditorium included Booker T. Washington, James Weldon Johnson, and the Fisk Jubilee Singers. In 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt spoke to 10,000 people gathered at the auditorium and on the surrounding grounds. Teddy? Good old Teddy. He spoke there to the people. Oh, that's amazing. The president's presence and speech acknowledged Church's political prominence in Republican Party circles. Two years earlier, in 1900, Church had been a Memphis delegate to the Republican National Convention, which he had nominated William McKinley for president and Roosevelt for vice president. In 1906, Church founded the Solvent Savings Bank and Trust Company, the first black bank in Memphis. During the 1907 panic, Church avoided a run on his bank by placing bags of money in its windows, with signs guaranteed that he had adequate reserves to pay off depositors. Well, that's sure one way to do it. <laughs> Throughout his years in Memphis, Church gave liberally to local schools, social and civic organizations, and charities, becoming the most prominent philanthropist in the city. In 1893, he purchased the first municipal bond issued by the city of Memphis, after its bankruptcy in 1879. In 1908, he paid off creditors to prevent them from seizing Beale Street Baptist Church. A self-made man and reputedly the South's first African-American millionaire, Church gave voluntarily to every worthy cause. Robert Reed Church Sr. died in Memphis in 1912 at the age of 73. He is buried in Elmwood Cemetery with his family in a beautiful mausoleum with white stone and columns in the front. It is beautiful. It's like an itty bitty mansion. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was gonna live in the afterlife with style. So. <laughs> exactly. And that was another that I saw there that day and thought, what's the story? His story is inspiring. That it is. All right, Dallin, we've had our millionaires. All right. Now we're to the murderers. Oh, brother. Oh, brother. A little true crime for everybody. <laughs> this story is about Alice Mitchell. She was born in 1872. She had four siblings and loved playing in the yard, loved baseball, playing marbles, practiced shooting with a rifle. She loved horses and her mother didn't know what to do with her. She tried everything to get her to sew, but she wasn't having that. She didn't want to do needlework. 
Alice was also not interested in boys and went to an all-girls school, which suited her fine. Because boys have cooties. <laughs> Back then, holding hands, a kiss or hug was a usual thing that good girlfriends did. No one thought anything about it. However, Alice had a relationship that was more serious than anyone knew. In fact, Alice was maybe obsessed with a young woman named Frida. When Frida's family moved upriver to Gold Dust, Tennessee, they weren't able to see each other as often as they had before. They had been neighbors, they were very close, they played together all the time while as they got older and Frida's family moved away, that changed things. But when they did see each other, they would stay together for weeks at a time and would even share a bed. During one of these visits, Alice entertained the idea of taking her own life or that of Fred, which Fred is Frida. Sometimes she refers to her as Fred. She had brought laudanum on the trip. I'm assuming that's something her. you don't want to ingest. <laughs> so she, it was like she was trying to decide between taking it herself or giving it to Fred while she slept. A difficult choice. A difficult choice. Somehow, Frida woke up, kind of thought something was up. She ended up staying up all night, afraid of what was going to happen. Alice had showed her the bottle with the poison sign on it. The next day, they were walking to the boat to put Alice on the steamer to head home to Memphis. She locked herself and Fred in a stateroom on the boat and then ended up giving herself the contents of the bottle of laudanum, the whole thing, and didn't kill herself, but was very ill. She suffered greatly for many days for this rash act. <laughs> the reason she said that she did that was that Fred loved Harry Bilger and Ashley Roselle, and she, Alice, meant to end their existence and troubles and leave Fred free to become the wife of her choice of the young men. Oh my. Because Frida was not as serious about the relationship as Alice. She had these other two men kind of on the string over here and Alice over here. Alice was... She's not about that. She was upset. At some point, Alice, desperate, devised a scheme in which she would begin dressing as a man she could marry Frida and they could go away to St. Louis and live as husband and wife. And she was gonna gain employment and take care of Fred. She got a ring and the next time she saw Frida, she gave her the ring and proposed the idea and Frida said yes. As bad luck would have it, Frida's big sister, that was like her mom, found all their correspondence. Oh my. Yeah, so she wrote a letter to Alice and her mother explaining all the stuff that had happened and said they're not to see each other ever again. Well, Alice's mother just thought she was daft and was like, she's been ill, just didn't think anything of it. Alice was absolutely devastated. She quit eating, stopped being around her family. So she fell into a deep depression this time. On November 26, 1892, 
Frida was in Memphis spending time with a friend and her sister Joe. They were about to board a steamboat to head back to Goldust when Alice, who had been following them with another friend, Lily Johnson, when she jumps out of the buggy and says, this will show her, and goes up to Frida, grabs her by the arm and turns her around, takes out her father's shaving razor, you know, those scary straight razors? Sweeney Todd. And slashes her with it. What? Yeah. So her sister Jo tries to stop her and she has this umbrella in her hand. So she's like whacking, (laughs) whacking Alice, which just makes Alice more ticked off. And she turns and slashes Jo across the collarbone with the razor. Oh my gosh. Here's Frida disoriented, bleeding. Alice then turns back to Frida and again cuts her. One of the wounds is a mortal wound. She cuts her throat almost from ear to ear. Ah, no. Fred fell to the earth and then Alice (laughs) walk up to the buggy and gets in and tells her friend what she just did. Oh my gosh. So how was your day? Well, I slashed my friend across the throat. I'm doing pretty good. Awful. Just my gosh. so, so strange. And so her friend is stunned and just drives her back to her house. Well, she's not going to say anything. And drops her off. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking you to the police. Wait a minute. I still have my razor. Oh, gosh. So she drops her off at home. Well, pretty soon the police come. And they arrest both of the girls. Lily was soon released, but Alice remained in jail. Alice was tried that summer and declared presently insane, meaning that she was insane before the murder. So therefore was unable to go through her trial. Oh, so she never stood trial? No. According to her own testimony, Alice killed Frida because if they could not get married, then there was no reason for either of them to live. In her language, she more than loved Fred. She took her life because she had told her she would before she had said, if you leave me, I will kill you. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that, that's really sweet. And so in her mind, she said, it was my duty to do it. The best thing would have been the marriage, but the next best thing was to kill Fred. It's a close second. It's a close second. That would make it sure that no one else could get her. So she saw no wrong in keeping her word to Frida that she would kill her if she wasn't going to be with her. Doing her duty and now she sees nothing wrong with what she did. So it's the age old, if I can't have them, no No one one will. will. Alice lived her remaining days in Western State Hospital for the Insane. Officials at the Tennessee State Insane Asylum could have at any time declared Alice Mitchell competent to stand trial, but she never left the institution. In 1898, she reportedly died of tuberculosis. However, one of her attorneys later stated in an interview that she committed suicide by jumping into a water tower. Well, don't you know there's no difference, obviously. <laughs> you would think that they'd be able to decide which which one it was. But maybe she had tuberculosis and then she jumped in the water tower. And that was just the easiest thing they could say. Back in those days, they did put people with tuberculosis away in the asylums. That's the best thing they could do with them? I guess because they were so contagious with such a bad disease that they didn't know what else to do with them. So it was like they needed to put them away somewhere, but not like in jail. 
And so they would get put in these asylums. And so the people with mental disabilities many times would end up dying of tuberculosis. My yeah. gosh. <laughs> Head slap. That was a face palm there, yeah. <laughs> oh. Which is terribly sad, as if they didn't have enough Problem. going on, you know? Right. That's horrible. That is the story of Alice Mitchell. Wow, what a start to <laughs> our murderers. I know. For some reason, today, our murderers are both female. All right. Her name was Alma Thedes. Alma was born to Ruby and W.M. Herring on December 10th, 1894. Alma Herring came to Memphis from Mississippi with her sister, brother, and mother. No father along with them, apparently. By age 16, they were in pretty dire straits financially. Alma was a pretty girl, so oh. she was sent out to be a prostitute on Vance Avenue, the edge of Memphis's red light district. She was sent out. Wow. Yeah, so she goes out on Vance Avenue. South Main and Vance was known for the gambling, the brothels, the bars, she appeared to be attracted to all of that. And she earned the name Vance Avenue Alma. She would make $1 her customer ah. or $2 if she was lucky. <laughs> they would sometimes take her to a nice restaurant called Okie's for lobster or oysters and absinthe frappes. More often, Alma's shabby admirers took her to dives where lower-class folks could get spaghetti and horseradish for 10 cents per plate. What a gentleman. That's classy. She gave most everything that she made to her mother. In 1917, Alma eloped to Arkansas with Halpin Cox, a stickman running the dice table in a gambling house. She was only 17 years old. But before she turned 18, she was back with her mother and seeking a divorce from Cox. Alma didn't stay single for long. She soon married a man by the name of Roy Calvert, aged 24, who was a railroad worker. The new couple lived in Little Rock near his job and fought like cats and dogs one day and were in La La Lovey Land the next day. Oh boy. Alma said, Roy drank. My, that marriage was a wild one. Two years later, Alma shot and killed Roy. She shot him? Alma claimed self-defense. The United Press reported, Alma Cox Calvert, 20, young wife of Ray Calvert, was freed in a Pulaski County Circuit Court today of a murder charge by a jury verdict of justifiable homicide. Well, that escalated quickly. I know. The widow returned to Memphis and the home of her mother and took back up the only occupation she knew, oh, no. strolling the Vance Avenue. But she didn't need to work for long. Her first husband, Halpin Cox, found her looking for company and they remarried. I'm not sure when, but Alma at some point is allowed to adopt his two children. So he previously already had kids. Yeah. Okay. Life seemed to be pretty peaceful for Alma at this time, but a gambler has so little free time for home life. He worked nights, slept in the days. Alma, who was used to being the center of male attention, was lonely. But a tragedy left her completely alone when her husband Halpin was killed in an automobile accident. 
In those days, ladies were expected to go into mourning and wear all black and the black veils. Have you seen that in TV? Right, like uh, in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, and you know, Scarlett was so upset that she had to wear all black and look ugly. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently that's how Alma felt about it too. Alma wasn't about to do that because she had to go back to street walking. And a widow in mourning garb wasn't the vibe the men would be looking for, apparently. So Alma becomes a house girl this time, which I take to mean that she was no longer working a corner, but was in one of the brothel houses. She was successful there, but a life of helping meet her mother's financial needs, sex work, hard liquor, and gambling began to rob Alma of her youthful beauty and her hard-earned money. Shocker. (laughs) You're a crowbait, the madam finally told her. Take your time about getting out. But you're through here. I'm really sorry. As the madam said, business is business. Alma moved herself into a cheaper house. It was in this second-rate brothel that Michael McClaver found her. Michael was 50 years old and was a well-off contractor. She called him a good scout. Some called him a humanitarian, and some called him a sucker. Mike undertook to lift Alma out of this life of degradation to make a lady of her. Alma worked at being a good wife to Mike, despite the fact that he was many years older, a bit deaf, didn't see well, and wasn't much to look at. But Mike had a heart of gold. He bought her a beautiful home on Avery Street and even invited Alma's mother to come live with them. It was probably the first time that anyone besides Alma had been good to Ruby. Not only that, but Mike gave his wife money with which to support her gambling habit, saying he could afford it. But after a time, Mike found that Alma's gambling was draining his bank account and he restricted her allowance. Alma was bored of Mike and let's just say not so happy about being put on an allowance and even considered going back to the streets. But reason prevailed, and Alma decided against it. Mike was good to her, and she didn't want to do that to him. Alma suggests to Mike that they should take in a border to take in some extra money. Ever the easygoing guy, Mike laughs and agrees to the idea. The first person they board is this good-looking young guy closer to her age named C.E. Miller, an ex-jockey and man of the world. Well, shoot. (laughs) You just can't even see where this is going, can you, Doc? possibly figure it out. (laughs) I can't see what's happening here. Well, even though Mike was short-sighted, he could still see what was going on behind his back. He knew the score. My dear, Mike cautioned his wife, you've got to be careful. On December 20th, 1927, an ambulance was called to the house of Michael and Alma McClavey on Avery Street. The police came through the front door and found Alma leaning over her husband, him lying on the floor of the bedroom. Mike McClavey had a bullet through his heart and the ambulance came and took away a dead man. Alma was screaming, oh, who could have shot my poor husband? Who indeed? At the police station, later Alma said, I haven't the slightest idea who killed Mike. I was in another room and I heard three shots. When I got to Mike's room, he was on the floor. No one else was there. I didn't see anyone. Where was the border miller the police wanted to know? The distracted widow couldn't tell. He seems to have vanished, she says. Alma was not detained, but the police were quietly looking into her story. 
they knew she had shot a husband in Little Rock, and they found witnesses who knew Alma's association with their border and of Mike's protests. According to these witnesses, Miller himself had boasted that he would kill Mike McClavy if the old fool ever tried to bust up things between he and Alma. Oh my. There was also those that said that Alma had recently given their border a gift. Care to guess? I don't know. Does it make a bang bang sound? <laughs> was it a gun? Was it Alma in the bedroom? With the revolver? <laughs> The police watched Alma closely and were soon led to where Miller was hiding out, and he was soon in police custody. The two were put on trial for the murder of Michael. Despite Alma's loud outbursts on the stand as to her innocence and love and gratitude for her husband, Miller was found guilty of murder and Alma was found guilty of accessory to murder, both sentenced to 15 years in the state prison at Nashville. Alma hugged her weeping mother, then shouted in defiance to the whole courtroom, I'll be back! Is she like the Southern Terminator? Or... <laughs> How would you even do that? I'll be back! <laughs> Alma was never single for long, even in prison. In prison? <laughs> oh, you can't make this crap up, Dallin. Yeah. <laughs> she actually met... In the prison workroom, a fellow prisoner, William Thede. Bill was doing time for the murder of a 15-year-old boy now killed during a grocery store holdup in 1921. And the two fell madly in love. They figured that they would be getting out around the same time and agreed to meet on the outside. Oh my gosh. Alma served only about four and a half years of her sentence and was paroled in 1931. Not long after, Bill was out too. The two were married in 1933 at Hernando, Mississippi. Alma's mother had saved money for Alma while in prison, and with that, she made a down payment on seven acres of land and a small three-room shack at Grant's Corners. Alma, Bill, and her mother raised chickens and pigs to make a living. She was now only a shadow of her former self, no longer beautiful, too thin, gray-haired, hardened. Her husband's interest started waning. In 1936, Thede sued for divorce, declaring that Alma had threatened to kill him. Oh. Surprise. Even if he wasn't afraid of his wife, he certainly no longer wanted to live with her. He said that living with Alma and her mother was like living in a pigsty. Well, they let two dogs, a cat, the pigs, and chickens run through the house. So, yeah, it was a pigsty. By definition. It was. The newspaper printed their photos as part of their divorce, and a local lady identifies them as the two people who had robbed her home just not long ago, Ugh. taking her linen and silver. They were both tried and convicted and given short sentences at the Shelby County Farm. When they were set free, she never laid eyes on old Bill again. He disappeared. Good for him. Smart fellow. Alma went back to her rickety shack, her mother, and her animals. There followed some very difficult years of poverty and hard work. They struggled to make ends meet and the mortgage on her little acreage. She was in trouble with the law again when she stole a cow. A whole cow. <laughs> she explained, I needed it for the babies. 
The court didn't ask about the babies, but Mrs. Alice Saxby, a Shelby County probation officer, went to the farm to see about the babies. Mrs. Saxby found three children, including one 22-month-old infant. She later testifies in probate court that the baby had been given to Alice by the baby's mother of Forest City, Arkansas, because it was illegitimate. And Vance Avenue Alma got it. They took the children from Alma's mother, who had been trying to care for them, while Alma spent 90 days in the workhouse for stealing the cow. In 1946, she married her fifth husband, Ed Gill, a 62-year-old planning mill sawyer. After they married, he moved into the shack with Alma, her mother, the piggies, and pets. Three years later, the sheriff knocks on their door. Come on, he says. Your husband's been killed. Oh. Dead? Alma showed surprise. Then she shrugs her shoulders. He's been a terrible drunk for weeks. How did he die? You got a 38 caliber pistol, Alma? Yeah, but I didn't shoot Ed. Honest, I didn't. Her 76-year-old mother then moves into the situation, screaming, This gal's telling the truth. Ed came home last night awful drunk. Then he went out again. But Alma slept right here in her bed. Alma produced her pistol, then was taken off to jail. When the ballistics showed that Ed had been shot by her own gun, she changed her story, saying that they were driving home after visiting friends and Ed had gotten drunk, and they were arguing about Ed wanting to leave her again, that Ed grabbed the pistol out of the glove box and they had gotten out of the truck from both doors, and after a scuffle, Ed had slipped and he'd been shot. Alma said that she was scared of the police and of being in trouble, so she had driven off, leaving Ed in the middle of the dark street. For four days, the investigators worked. Nothing added up. Ed's work friends said they had never seen Ed drink steadily. One of the truck's doors was permanently broken and didn't open, like she said. And besides all of this, Ed was a foot taller than Alma and weighed a hundred pounds more than she. In court at her arraignment hearing, Alma states, I'm no more afraid of this trial than I am of God. Ed didn't marry me blindfolded. I laid my cards on the table. No woman in Memphis has tried harder to be law-abiding than me. Her cards? <laughs> well, don't... let's see. Card one, murderer. Card two, <laughs> robber. And card three, prostitute. <laughs> what? She doesn't have good cards. Who are these guys? <laughs> They're not the winning cards. The trouble is, when you try to be upstanding, the other women won't let you. And of course, the police always hound you. The judge that had presided at her cow-stealing hearing was her judge at this trial. She greeted him breezily, waving, Hi, judge. Indicted shortly thereafter, Alma is too concerned about them bringing out a trial all her past deeds. So she chooses to plead guilty to second-degree murder the state's attorney, his heart touched by this miserable target of poverty, asked for a sentence no longer than 10 years. Are you serious? Serious. Ah. Oh. Muttering, the whole world is against me. Alma, who had a hand in the death of three out of five husbands, was led away. This time, she did not say she would be back. Yeah. After Alma was paroled in 1955, just six years later... What does she do? Oh, let's see. She gets married oh, again. Oh, yeah. She gets married one more oh, time. These guys are idiots. To William Massey. The marriage doesn't last long, and Mr. Massey luckily gets out with only a divorce instead. 
of being shot. That is a great alternative. <laughs> Alma goes back to the name of Feed. In Alma's last years, she ran a boarding house in Memphis, and she died in a nursing home in 1970 at the age of 75. So Dallin, at the beginning of the episode, I talk about a stone that says mother at the top. That is Alma's headstone. What? Says mother, Alma Theed, and then has the dates. So if you're just walking through the cemetery, you would look down and think, aw, so sad. A sweet mother. Her kids loved her. I mean, out of all the words they could have chosen out of her life, they chose mother, which is surprising. (laughs) <laughs> which is kind kind that's that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> a lot a lot of times people choose the kindest things they can on your headstone so i i guess that was good that is the story of alma Theed. wow dallin thank you for helping tell our stories today yeah it was great thanks for having me we will get you back here again soon oh yeah the stories beneath the stones are as varied as books on a library shelf And like a book, you can't judge it by its cover. But that's the way it always is with people, right? It's why I love to talk to people, to hear their experiences and life stories. It's what I feel as I walk through a cemetery. The love, the sorrow, regret, triumph over trials, and a life well-lived, and also not so well-lived. It's the stories. It's what drives me to discover what lies beneath the stones, bones. And shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at Stones, Bones, and Shadows Podcast.com. Also, Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.